This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Driver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our third episode in our four-part series on uh, Chinua Achebe's really stunningly complex little novel, Things Fall Apart. And In episode one, we looked at Nigeria, the country itself, uh, the historical context of the book, Achebe's life, and also the poem Achebe used for the title of his book. In episode two, we got into a couple of the cultural features Achebe highlights uh, in part one of his book, as well as we begin discussing chapters one through seven. And uh, we are quick to notice that although this is a story about a man, a very relatable man that could be from anywhere and struggles with issues and plague all of us, Achebe situates him in a cultural context that's really um, very uniquely Igbo. So who are the Igbo? What do they value? Uh, these are things that we kind of learn organically as we read through the story. Uh, but this week, as we look at getting through the rest of part one as well as most of part two of the novel, the word I want to highlight is the word complex. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> because like every other great piece of art, when you first engage this book, you don't understand the art of it. I mean, the story feels natural and, and almost simple, but the artist in Achebe makes the story feel easy and natural, but we don't realize that that's intentional and it's uh, complicated to do. And it reminds me of Swedish rock. <laughs> Okay, are you going to really compare Achebe to Swedish rock? Well, it's going to be a reach, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so to give you full disclosure, um, Christy and I have watched this Netflix series called This Is Pop. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm a musician, although not a famous one, but uh, I love learning the stories of great music. And uh, anyway, what the host, uh, Jamie Carroll, talks about in that particular episode, which it's one of your favorite bands, Christy. Oh, yeah. ABBA. ABBA. 
and it's a phenomenon. How does this little band from a little country change the musical landscape for millions around the entire globe? And uh, actually, it's, not, it's more than just about ABBA. I mean, it's the foundation for Britney Spears and Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, and uh, they would all be obsolete. I'm still looking for a Chebe. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'll get there. They would all be obsolete without the work of these uh, two Swedish guys, Dennis Pops and Max Martin. But here's the connection. Okay. When you listen to a song like Waterloo from ABBA, it feels simple and easy. The listener just thinks, oh, I really like that. It stands out. Why out of thousands of songs do some stand out? And, And how do the same writers do that over and over again? And how do they do it? And what does Max Martin know that the rest of us don't know? And... He's got some kind of trick up his sleeve. Well, guess what? So does Achebe. That's how his book stands out. It's deceptively simple, but it's inordinately complex. All right, fair enough. And, of course, you knew you had me at ABBA. But today we are going to talk about, among other things, what you're talking about. These fascinating tricks of the greats, the truly greats. You can call them tricks. You can call them techniques, intuition, But Achebe is one of those because he uses this artistry to make what those rock stars do, which is that human connection with all of us. I think structure is a good place to start as we try to think about how does that work, because structure is something that usually just flies under the radar. But structure, just like in a song, in a novel, has to be, well, very deliberate, Last episode, we ended by reading the end of chapter seven of the novel, one of the most important chapters of the book. It's emotional. It's important in terms of the plot development. It's important in terms of the character development. But let's notice this. It's placed smack dab in the middle of part one. There are 13 chapters in part one. Chapter seven, think about it. Six chapters before, six chapters after. It's the heart of the first section. Now look again. When we get to chapter 13, we're going to see another big plot point. It's the end of the first section, but it's actually the very middle point of the book because the book has 25 chapters, 12 before, 12 after, leaving us with just little old chapter 13. And it's the heart of the entire book. Well, what happens in this chapter? It's where Conquo commits a feminine crime. You've done those yourself, right? (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, Not in this case. Uh, In this case, the feminine crime is an accidental murder. Mm. And he's forced to flee. Now, Why is an accidental murder at the heart of the book when there's actually murders? What about this event takes us to one of the most important themes of the entire book? Why is there even attention drawn to the idea that we have such a thing as you ironically chimed in as a feminine crime? What does crime even have a place when you're talking about gender? Why is there such a thing as masculine and feminine anything and much less crime? Achebe, of course, when asked a similar question, answered that question with an Igbo parable, which shouldn't surprise you with all the parables in the book. But anyway, he says this, wherever something stands, something else will stand beside it. And the idea is interesting, even though, you know, you have to think about it a long time to see what he's trying to say. 
But the idea is that life can never be just one thing. Life is duality. This duality applies to everything, but not just in shoes of gender. But gender issues help us understand dualities. And its application as it pertains to issues of gender is of central importance because it's a big focus in the book. Achebe draws particular attention to man's need for balance between what we'll call the male and female principles. He highlights through Okonkwo's extremism the difficulty all of us have in one way or another in finding balance, being okay with the person that we are. And to support this theme, Achebe had creates balance in the very physical aspect of how the book is laid out. The book is laid out on a balance. Just one of those cool things where structure supports meaning. Something that only a book nerd would know. I know, but it's very cool. Well, it's one of those subtle things artists do uh, that we don't notice, and that is the art. And Another subtle thing that Achebe has done in, in this book that fascinates me is how he has blended African oral traditions into the genre of a novel, which is really something of a Western writing style. Um, I should add, by the way, of being totally honest, um, that it is a misconception about Africa to think that African literature is entirely oral. I mean, the, the truth is Arabic writing of northern Africa is really over 5,000 years old and some of the oldest writing on the planet. But, however, oral literature does have an important role in Africa and in things fall apart. And we understand why this matters and how oral traditions enrich and really stabilize a society. Well, I'm glad you did mention other African traditions because I wanted to mention something either because I may have given the impression in other episodes that Achebe was the first modern African novelist and that there weren't any African novels before his and that also isn't true. There are other writers before Achebe that had written, you know, pretty well acclaimed African novels. A famous one uh is Amos Tutuela's book, The Palm Wine Drunkard. But Achebe's book has stood out over time and has really stood the test of time because of its popularity and the influence that it's had on how the world has come to understand Africa. It focuses on colonial issues. It focuses on native cultural issues. And it also has this ability to humanize and unify our humanity all at the same time. People really can identify with what's going on in the story. So it had a large commercial impact. It had a large cultural impact, more so than maybe any other African novel up to that point. But I did want to make uh, sure that we understood that it isn't actually the first. So having said that, let's move on to some of these cultural, religious, and gender issues. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, way to stay away from anything controversial. (laughs) I know. Cultural, religion, and uh, sex. (laughs) Yes. Well, before we get into that, uh, I wanted to make one more comment about structure and how it relates to colonialism that, to me, is really genius. As you pointed out, one way um, Achebe blends African oral traditions with Western traditions is by intertwining the myths and the proverbs kind of organically into the text throughout the story. I mean, there are 27 proverbs. and um, However, uh, what's interesting is that they are not dispersed equally. Most of these are from the first part of the story, and the last chapter has no proverbs at all. So the role of myths and proverbs steadily decreases over the course of the story. I mean, it's a pretty cool and amazing design element. 
just as the eboos get slowly colonized, almost without noticing, the book itself gets colonized. <laughs> uh, the reader is getting colonized. And the latter parts of the book heavily quote from the Bible and the myths slowly slip away. You know, just an interesting observation of technique. Well, it's for sure super interesting and something to notice and think about, or you wouldn't notice as you go along. When, when we left off, Akanko had just killed Ikemafuna, and in chapter 8, he's drinking booze from dawn to dusk and not eating. You know, we've all heard that country song. He can't sleep, and he doesn't eat until Enzema, his daughter, who is constantly, he's constantly lamenting, isn't a boy, sits there, and she makes him eat. Akanko actually chides himself, saying this, When did you become a shivering old woman? You who are known in all the nine villages for your valor in war. How can a man who has killed five men in battle fall to pieces because he has added a boy to their number? Akankwo, you have become a woman indeed. To which I would like to add, you certainly have not. I don't think most women would have killed Ikimafuna. <laughs> well, there's a comment. I mean, I would argue most men would not either. Well, uh, you're probably right. Maybe my personal biases are, are kicking in there uh, for a, a minute. But I do want to draw attention to those comments because all of the gender talk really has upset a lot of women over the years and has kind of gotten a chebe called a chauvinist on more than one occasion by more than one feminist critic. But, and I know this is going to sound surprising because I'm always looking for an opportunity to rage at a male artist for chauvinism, but I don't read this text this way at all. It's clear that Akanko is obsessed with gender, and Akanko is definitely a chauvinist. And of course, there's chauvinism inherent in Ibu culture, as there is in almost any culture on planet Earth. But Achebe, the artist, is not endorsing this. He's exposing the weakness inherent with obsession with gender. And I might add, obsessing over gender is not a problem that only happens in the Igbo culture. I would argue that the world has never been more obsessed with gender than the Western world is at this current moment which for me makes Achebe's ideas extremely interesting for us to consider in a modern context today. Yes, uh, it's something that literature always does. Uh, it allows us to consider sensitive topics that many can't talk about without getting too emotional. But somehow in the context of the past, it feels safe and non-threatening. And we, we can consider more than our own insecure point of view that way. Well, let's see if that works as we talk about gender in this context of the Ibu worldview, because we also are going to throw on top of that issues of faith and religion. And in many cases, these are things that kind of overlap. So, Gary, in order to be able to overlap them, how is the pantheon of the Ibu gods organized and how do gender roles tie in to that religious tradition? That's kind of a huge <laughs> question. Can you do it briefly? <laughs> well, I don't know about briefly, but it's a great starting point. Uh, so let's revisit this idea of balance. And uh, Now, I know we're going to credit the Ibu worldview for this idea, but I, but I want to, and this is something that came up with Tolkien and Christianity. We don't want to say that the Ibu people are the only people that believe in balance or that the Ibu faith tradition is the only faith tradition where this value is central, because that's not true. Uh, but it is where Achebe gets his values. 
So as we reference the context of balance, we are going to reference it uh, really as an expression of Ibu religious thought. And uh, the Ibu caution against excesses in all aspects and promote balance in equilibrium in all things. Uh, like the proverb we just quoted, wherever something stands, something else will stand beside it. You're trying to sound like a conquo. <laughs> can't even imagine how you would know what his voice sounds like. But <laughs> I have it in my head. No, I'm sure you do. But this proverb comes up a lot when you read things about the Ibu. Uh, every person, every community, if they are to function without chaos, must have an equilibrium between male and female qualities. Now, I know we could go down a rabbit trail on what constitutes male and female qualities and which ones are better than the other ones, but that really is irrelevant to what we want to do. So, setting that aside... We will accept what are the male and what are the female qualities as they are accepted for the Ibu. So for the Ibu, the idea of war must be set precisely next to the idea of peace with equal value. And the idea of force must be entirely balanced with the idea of grace and, you know, so forth and so on. And uh, what we must understand that is that in the Ibu societies, even in pre-colonial days, Women had self-expression and they had power. Um, it was just not exactly the same as the male version of those two things. And uh, I know we don't have time to talk about it here, but uh, historically in uh, 1929, there was even a women's war. Oh, wow. Where women all over the country cooperated politically. And one thing to see as we move through the story, although women had limited rights in their husband's homeland, they never lost power in their own homeland. And that's important. And Women always maintained a voice in their natal lands and uh, could come and go as they wish. But let me point out that women have not always had this power in even some of our more progressive cultures. So the social institutions themselves have an inherent balance of power between male and female, just like the proverb, wherever something stands, something else will stand beside it. Well, when we understand that concept, it's easy to see that Obierica, not Oconquo, is a better example of a balanced man and therefore a strong and better one. Oconquo clearly cannot be the representative of an ideal Igbo man in large part because he is absolutely unable to reach any kind of balance between the male and female principles in his own life. He's angry at himself that he feels love for Ikimofuna because that's feminine, he sees it. He sees it as a weakness and not a strength. His misunderstanding of that causes internal anxiety and fear. This seems obvious to anybody reading the book, but honestly, lots of us, if we're honest, struggle with issues of identity as it pertains to what we think of as male and female principles. We have trouble defining who we are as humans because of this imbalance illustrated vividly here within the context of the Ibu culture. Achebe makes the case that if we do not have a balance between the female and male principles in our own lives, the result is internal chaos and things fall apart. The female goddess Ani, who is the most central deity in the book, is assisted by a male human helper in Zaini. The male oracle Agbala—I say her name—it's hard. The male oracle Agbala has a female priestess, Chika or Cielo. In the Igbo religious tradition, even the gods themselves have a counterbalance, and they're made to balance out. Indeed, and uh, when we compare the attitudes of Okwankwo to Obierica throughout the book, 
the contrast between these two men just really only grows over time. And let's read the the passage out of chapter eight when after killing Ikimafuna Okonkwo goes to Obi Erika to ask why he didn't participate in the killing. And Obi Erika gives us the proper mindset of the balanced Ibu warrior. Okay, you can read Okonkwo and I'll be Obi Erika. I cannot understand why you refused to come with us to kill that boy. Because I did not want to. I had something better to do. You sound as if you questioned the authority and the decision of the oracle who said he should die. I do not. Why should I? But the oracle did not ask me to carry out its decision. But someone had to do it. If we were all afraid of blood, it would not be done. And what do you think the oracle would do then? You know very well, Okonkwo, that I am not afraid of blood, and if anyone tells you that I am, he is a lie. And let me tell you one thing, my friends. If I were you, I would have stayed at home. What you have done will not please the earth. It is the kind of action for which the goddess wipes out whole families. The earth cannot punish me for obeying her messenger. A child's fingers are not scalded by a piece of hot yam, which its mother puts into its palm. That is true. But if the oracle said that my son should be killed, I would neither dispute it nor be the one to do it. They would have gone on arguing had Ophiodu not come in just then. It was clear from his twinkling eyes that he had important news, but it would be impolite to rush him. Obierica offered him a lobe of the cola nut he had broken with a conquo. Ophiodu ate slowly and talked about the locusts. When he finished his cola nut, he said, the thing that happened these days are very strange. Did you catch the detail about the cola nut? Of course. Uh, it's funny that after something like that is drawn to your attention, you notice it everywhere. And another thing uh, that's difficult for those who are monotheists to understand is the complexity of this polytheistic tradition, where the will of one god, in this case, Agbala, leads straight into conflict or clash with another with Ani, and only a, a wise human like Obierica knows how to find that narrow path of balance. What Okonkwo doesn't understand is having a female characteristic doesn't make you a woman. Everyone is supposed to have both male and female characteristics, and if they don't come to terms with that, they have chaos. It's kind of a controversial statement to make, even now. So many people feel and express a struggle in finding balance with these principles in their own lives, and so much of the cultural wars that can get aggressive, cruel, and chaotic and have over time could benefit from some of the Ibu wisdom embedded in this very ancient cultural society. There is really no doubt about that. And when we use the term the female principle, what we mean is all aspects of uh, female involvement in society. And that includes the physical and visible realm, but you know, also the spiritual or the invisible realm. And in all animistic cultures, not just Ibu culture, there's a lot of crossover between these two worlds. And remember, most people on planet Earth are animists to one degree or another. Now, remind us what you mean when you say animists. Um, an animist is a person that believes there is a spirit world that engages the physical world. And most people em embrace this to some degree, and even in the most secular societies on Earth, we see elements of animism, like the evil eye is a good example, but there are other more secularized expressions of this. I mean, participating in seances or reading horoscopes, and 
anything that reaches out to spirits in any way falls in the category of what we would call animism. And uh, Achebe illustrates in his book what that looks like specifically to the Ibu culture. And animism um, isn't a certain set of beliefs. It, it looks different in every religion or culture. It just means that you believe in the spirit world at some level. So in the Ibu tradition, the physical world must have balance. It must balance itself out between the male and female principles, but also the spiritual world must as well. And we see it in the kola nuts. Back to the kola nut. It's always about the kola nut. <laughs> so just like the two halves of the kola nut are still one kola nut, both halves of the female and male principles connect to create completion. And when you upset uh, the moral code designed by the gods and goddesses of all, you know all of society is now at risk. And the creator god, um, as we see at the end of the book, is Chukwu. But Chukwu is neither male nor female. It's the lesser gods who are gendered and are under the titles him and her. And uh, under these gods are the ancestors who have died, and these ancestors are close at hand. And we see in this section of the book that they are called on from time to time to weigh in on community life. And the priests and the priestesses are the ones who can go back and forth between these two worlds. And we have also seen, and this may be a good place to point this out, that in Ibu religion, each individual has their own god or spark of divinity, which is called a chi. Uh, there is dialogue between the spirit world and the physical world at every level, all the way down to the chi in Ibu world. Well, I'm glad you brought up chi because that word comes up all the time and something that doesn't seem to have a real cultural equivalent for us. Yes, and even anthropologists have had a hard time agreeing on a definition when discussing it. I mean, one reason it's hard for us to understand is that uh, it, too, is discussed in Ibu culture as being part of a duality. And Achebe simplifies it for us as well, you know, as, as anyone can, honestly. And it's one of those things you have to accept and not try to totally dissect. If I were going to suggest maybe a remote Christian comparison um, I would say maybe the idea of the Holy Spirit and the Trinity, something's difficult to wrap up a, a concrete definition around, but it's something you have to accept as part of ascribing really to a Christian worldview. Well, leaving the spirit world for a moment, let's get back to the physical representations of gender that we can get our minds around in the Ibu culture. Uh, there is something about these roles that are obvious and visible. So let's look at the construction of the Ibu compound. Let's look at a Conquo's compound. Instead of a giant house like you would have in Memphis, a Conquo has a hut that's built in the middle, and that's where he lives, but basically by himself, he, his obi. He clearly is in charge. He's in the middle. Each of his wives, though, has her own home, in essence, and they live there with their children, and they run their home however they want. And they do a lot of things. They cultivate crops. They raise their children. They really do whatever they want. Every night, they bring dinner to a conquo. But basically, the administration of their world is on their terms. They even cover for each other, as we saw Conquo's first wife doing at one point. We can see that they're in intricately involved like these women are in matters of business and economy they go to market they negotiate trades 
we can see that they're also the ones who instill values in the next generation. They're responsible for the history. They're nurturers. They hold the power of the purse. And we all know that that's the real power. (laughs) That is in all cultures. And so uh, two things you pointed out. Uh, Women are highly organized in this community, and they have uh, some economic freedom. Uh, That is not just in Okonkwo's case. Uh, Women in Ibu society are overwhelmingly organized in this way, and even to this day, but uh, especially during the polygamy days. And we cannot underestimate the power in this. I know it feels like men are in charge because Okonkwo is sitting in the middle of that hut. Uh, The nine justices are all male and seem to be running the show. But what Okonkwo finds out when he goes back to his mother's homeland is that that is really a misguided perspective and one that is partly responsible for his own demise. And Okonkwo doesn't understand the balance of male and female roles in the community, and he understands one to be superior to the other in terms of community uh, in his own life as well. And so in much of the middle section, uh, the book deals with addressing over and over again these issues of gender and the gender principles and how they're connected and how they have to be intertwined event after event centers around gender. We're going to see marriage negotiations in chapter nine. We see the events surrounding the birth of Enzima. And in chapter 10, we see the entire community coming together to address the issue of a man beating his wife. All of these issues directly discuss gender. Well, interestingly, that court ceremony scene in particular is something that culturally, if you just read it from a Western standpoint, may seem strange and really almost kind of otherworldly. It it seems these masked individuals are um, arbitrarily creating justice from spirits. But in actuality, if we look at, at what is actually happening in the passage, there's a lot that is very similar to Western justice and and really a universally accepted way to think of justice. If you're looking for a system that can be accepted as fair and balanced, this is it. What do you mean by that? Well, in this court scene, if we want to call it that, the entire village is called together to give a public airing of the dispute. And this airing of the dispute will be judged by a group of people that are called the Igugu. Now, what are the Igugu? Well, there are nine justices, uh, sort of, one representing each, you know, tribe of the clan. Presumably the elders are communing with their ancestors and are representing them in these expressions of current people Well, with the masks. Think of our courts in the United States. At our highest court, we also have nine Supreme Court justices, and uh, going before that group or any other court is it's public and it's full of ceremony. I mean, uh, these men embody the wisdom of um, the American ancestors as was codified by the Constitution, but uh, not just the Constitution, uh, judicial review as it's been upheld since the beginning of our court system. And the public is to watch to see that the judgments made are according to the agreed upon social norms that transcend any one purpose, any one person, excuse me, and or any one group of people, and that is very important, uh, or even any one generation. They are to give a collective understanding that is bigger than one political, cultural, social moment, and the courts are very aware of that function. And so they're dressed in a way that clearly indicates that. Our, our justices also wear distinctive clothes. In Britain, 
uh, the costumes are even more pronounced with the white wigs and everything. In our courts, the justices are not speaking for themselves. Uh, at least they're not supposed to. Uh, they are not to be activists using their own opinions and personal moral codes to choose things as they see fit. They swear basically to make their judgments based on the principles that actually predate them and are larger than they are. It's actually an extremely um, high-pressure job because as we see on TV pretty much every day, people want what they want. Yeah, they do. (laughs) And they do not want to be held accountable uh, to a tradition that is older than they are or interested more than just what they as individuals want or think is best at that little tiny moment in time. And that's exactly what we see here. Uh, This court is doing the exact same thing that we see in other traditions. In the American tradition, if the trial is important enough, it sometimes ends up on television. Uh, But here's what is happening is to each party that gives its testimony and then the agreed upon values determine the outcome. I mean, Achebe is reminding us of the blindness and the ignorance of people who can't see beyond their own culture or their own moment in time. And uh, once again, Conrad's characters um, had they been watching would have been thrown off by the drums and the ceremony and completely missed that cultural equivalency. I mean, Ibu justice is cross-generational. It looks to the ancestors in the past for wisdom and moral instruction. Uh, the stability of their community survives because the system instills trust and members agree to comply and submit to what is perceived as fair. And it survives because it includes the past in the discussion. And interestingly, again, something is also a problem in modern life where uh, culture devalues the past by using negatively connotated words like outdated or old-fashioned. <laughs> well, in this case, it's interesting that Achebe chooses to highlight a case where a man has beaten his wife. I kind of have to admit that when I first read it, I was a little disappointed that they made the woman go back to the mean man. But I will say, having been threatened that his genitals would be cut off, he may think twice (laughs) before hitting her. I think the point is made. Yeah. And it isn't clear to me, though, if she has to go back or she's being given an opportunity to reconcile in light of this new threat and this new commitment to do better in the future. And maybe her life will be better uh, in the long run if that happens. I do also want to point out an interesting detail now that we're just slimpy talking gender politics of power and religion. In the very next chapter, Cello shows up possessed by the spirit of Agbala and takes away Enzima, Akofi's, Akonko's second wife's only daughter. And in a feat of super strength, she just carries, hauls this girl off. This is the only moment in the entire book where we see Okonkwo embrace what the Ibu would consider the feminine principle. And he shows a caretaking emotion of nurture. He stays out all night and watches over his daughter. He shows compassion and affection towards his second wife. And he actually follows her lead. She's the strong one in this incident, not him. And he readily acknowledges his support for her. Ironically, this is the closest place that he'll ever be to the gods at any point in the story. In the next chapter, uh, we have the celebration of Obi Erica's daughter's engagement, which is another happy time. And 
there are cultural points to make, but we'll have to skip over them for time's sake because we need to get to the heart of the book. Which yeah, is we do. Chapter 13, where uh, Akonkwo accidentally kills Izudu's 16-year-old son at his funeral. And Okonkwo has now offended Ani, the goddess of the earth, for the third time. The first time was when he beat his wife during the week of peace. The second time was when he kills Ikimafuna, but this time... He kills a clansman, and even though it is accidental, which is considered a feminine crime, <laughs> there is swift and immediate punishment. It is pretty immediate. His house is burned down, and I want to point out that even the cautious Obierica participates in this, clearly a sign of his agreement. Aconquo is exiled for seven years to live in his mother's homeland. Uchendu, his mother's youngest brother, explains the thinking around this to us a little bit later in the story. It's actually a really often quote passage. He says this, It is true that a child belongs to its father, but when a father beats his child, it seeks sympathy in its mother's hut. A man belongs to his fatherland when things are good and life is sweet. But when there is sorrow and bitterness, he finds refuge in his motherland. And that is why we say that mother is supreme. Well, I know we need to move on from issues of gender, but I do want to stay add here a long time. One more thing. <laughs> when we get to the end of the book and Okonkwo commits his last crime, I won't spoil that in case you don't know what that happens to be. But I will say that his crime will again be a crime against the goddess Ani, the feminine principle at work again. He offends the feminine side of his culture in every possible way from beginning to end and the obvious point being that it is this obsession with gender this lack of balance between the gender principles in his own life which causes things to fall apart for him on a personal level it's certainly an idea worth thinking about and if you're reading this book as a class or as a club a question to talk about would be what does an imbalance of female and male principles look like in my culture but getting back to structure again, Achebe divides his book in three parts, and this is clear, they're titled. The first part focuses entirely on Ibu land, Ibu culture, Ibu characters. It's entirely pre-colonial. It's not the Garden of Eden necessarily, but it is self-contained. And while a lot of the story is absolutely realistic, the idea that there would be a self-contained town in the 1890s totally isolated from any colonial or outside influence probably is not a realistic position to take. Part two, though, is a transitional part of the book. And this part, we're going to focus on the adaptation and change. And Achebe places Akonkwo in exile from his clan in in Mabanta, the land of his mother, And in this section, he deliberately introduces the colonizers, the white man. They call them the albinos sometimes. And Akankwo hears about the advent of the white man in Umufia from a secondhand source. We hear about the advent of the colonizers as readers also through the voice of Obierica, who visits Akankwo during his second year of the exile. It's further interesting to see that even as the missionaries are introduced into Aconquo's motherland, Aconquo relates to them from a distance. He assumes a very stiff posture of defiance and resistance. He also just assumes the Amofia is exactly the state still that it was when he left it. Let's read this part from chapter 15. Have you heard, asked Gobierica, that Abame is no more? 
How is that? asked Uchindu and Okonkwo together. Obama has been wiped out, said Obierica. It is a strange and terrible story. If I had not seen the few survivors with my own eyes and heard their story with my own ears, I would not have believed. Was it not on the Eki day that they fled into Umofia? He asked his two companions, and they nodded their heads. Three moons ago, said Obierica, and on Eki market day, a little band of fugitives came into our town. Most of them were sons of our land whose mothers had been buried with us. But there were some, too, who came because they had friends in our town and others who could think of nowhere else open to escape. And so they fled into Umofia with a woeful story. He drank his palm wine and Okonkwo filled his horn again, and he continued. During the last planting season, a white man had appeared in their clan. An albino, suggested Okonkwo. He was not an albino. He was quite different. He sipped his wine, and he was riding an iron horse. The first people who saw him ran away, but he stood beckoning to them. In the end, the fearless ones went near and even touched him. The elders consulted their heir oracle, and it told them that the strange man would break their clan and spread destruction among them. Obierica again drank a little of his wine. And so they killed the white man and tied his iron horse to their sacred trees because it looked as if it would run away to call the man's friend. I forgot to tell you another thing which the oracle said. It was that the other men, white men, were on their way. We see a white man, presumably a missionary, but we don't know that, traveling on an iron horse, which we'll later understand to be a bicycle, attempting to engage a local group. When the clan decides to kill him on the advice of their oracle, they provoke a revenge attack from the colonial government that they pretty much don't even realize is going on because it's part of a larger world that now geographically overlaps their self-contained one. Um, There's a man by the name of Robert Wren who very convincedly, at least to me, um, argues that Achebe drew on an actual event that happened in 1905 in um, the villages of Obizi in Azudo when uh, he creates this Abame story. There were two villages about 50 miles south of Achebe's home village of Ogidi, which, of course, is the, the model for Umofia, and something almost exactly like that happened there. The real-life incident was actually one of the smaller events that were part of what the British called the uh, Campaign of Pacification in Ibu Land. Oh, pacification. Mm-hmm. I really love how governments or people in control always name something exactly the opposite of what it actually does. If a government creates a protection of privacy act you're pretty sure it's going to invade your privacy and if there's something called a freedom act you can be sure that it's enslaving someone somewhere if if an article is supposed to promote transparency it's obviously being designed to hide something (laughs) (laughs) you sound just a little bit jaded uh it's true though well exactly and the the pacification of ibu land was actually genocide Um, it was an act of violence but it wasn't pacific or peaceful no (laughs) But what is even more interesting than that is that the uh, incident Achebe uses in his story to introduce colonial violence is a small event, comparatively speaking. And um, around the same time, a much larger event occurred in real life in 1901. Uh, That included the overtaking of a culturally significant oracle and involved the buying and purchasing of slaves to take to other parts of Nigeria uh, this event today uh, is called the the Arochuku conflict. 
and it was much wider in scale, encompassing you know over six thousand square miles, and it involved resistance from the Ibu, but. Um, it's not referenced at all in Achebe's story. So, Christy, why do you think that's the case? If indeed Achebe's wanted to discuss colonialism and colonial violence, why not bring a huge conflict into the story? Well, I'm going to theorize as to why, but most critics uh, agree that Achebe's story does seem comparatively light on colonial violence. And Achebe has actually been criticized for this. Some argue that if you're talking about the transition from pre-colonialism to colonialism, it should definitely discuss at length the atrocities that were involved. Some critics say it's because Achebe himself was a product of colonialism, so he couldn't really see it. I absolutely don't think that's the case at all. I mean, there's so many essays where he references colonial cruelty unequivocally. Uh, And his famous essay, The Education of a British Protected Child, he flat out says colonial rule was stronger than any marriage. The Ibu fought in the battlefield and lost. They put roadblocks in its way and lost again. So why did he do it? Well, here's my thinking on this. Achebe could absolutely have written a post-colonial novel detailing atrocity after atrocity, arousing sympathy, illustrating very clearly man's inhumanity to man in great detail. He could have written the story of brave men and women resisting this change, but that's not what he wanted to do. The book is not meant to be an example of anti-colonial resistance. Aconquo is not supposed to be Mel Gibson and Braveheart. <laughs> oh I mean, remember, Achebe said he wanted to give his people their voice. He wants to display their civilization, to show cultural equivalence. And so there needed to be a careful exploration of the issues, sure, of colonialism, without letting the outside culture overshadow the Ibu culture. In that case, he doesn't want the British to overwhelm the story and take over the center stage. His accusation of the British, if you remember, is first that they dismissed his culture as if it didn't exist at all. And then they came in and hijacked his culture through colonization. So Hachebe is not about to allow the Europeans here to hijack his own novel. This is a story about Ibu lands, about Africa, and it will stay that way until, well, actually to the very last page, and then we're going to see an ironic twist, but that's for next episode. <laughs> well, I would think another, there's another point of art in writing when you put the twist on the very last page. Yeah, of but, course. Uh, uh, it really is a difficult perspective to take. I mean, how do you tell the story of a colonized people without focusing on the colonizer? Exactly. And so Achebe's novel is going to take a few liberties at this point and does not force a strict adherence to the exact historical events like you might expect if you're reading traditional historical fiction. The Eba will stay center stage and the British will be introduced from here on to the rest of the book, but here they're going to be introduced indirectly to the voice of a wise and respected native, Obierica. All right. Well, we covered a lot of ground uh, and a lot of topics uh, during this session. So thank you for being with us. Um, As always, we appreciate your support. We ask that you um, follow us on our social media, that you check us out at howtolovelypodcast.com. And thanks again for being with us. Peace out.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.